new series on the Gospel of John. And in the first 18 verses, it was the prologue, or what many theologians call the prologue, the introduction to the entire book, talking about how Jesus is, is God, how he was the creator of the universe alongside God the Father, um, how he is the light uh, for all humanity, and how he would come into this world, how he would be rejected by many people, even his own people, but many people would also receive him and believe him as Lord and Savior, and he would give them light and life, and how he came in the form of a man, of Jesus Christ, to bring grace um, into uh, our broken world. That was the prologue, the big story of what John is about. In, in the first few verses, John 7 and 8, I believe, he talks about how John the Baptist came and bore witness to this, bore witness to this Jesus who is the light. And now in verses 19 through 34, we're going to look at the message. We're going to look at the message of this witness of John the Baptist. So we're going to be getting into that and seeing the specifics of what his message was and what he had to say. So I'm going to read verses 19 through 34, and then we'll swing back around and, and work through it more slowly. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is God's Word. All right, we're going to switch a route here. Okay. So we see here in this passage, um, verses 19 through 34, a lot going on. John comes onto the scene, and his actual message, the message that he has for the people of Israel. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look through this and, and look at a little bit of the background here to understand what's going on. And then I'm going I'm to focus on two primary um, points or applications for us. The first being the power of the message. And second, the privilege of the messenger. The power of the message and the privilege of the messenger. But before we get into the those two points, a little bit of background as we're looking through this to see what's going on here. So um, John comes out and he begins to declare this message about preparing the way for the coming of the Christ. And, and people start coming out to him. Not just a few people, not just dozens of people, not just hundreds of people, but probably thousands of people are coming out to John. In, in the book of Matthew, a different gospel, it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. That means 
that whole area, tons of people were going to John the Baptist to be baptized at the Jordan River to hear his message of repentance and, and turning towards God. It was a sea of humanity that was coming to him. Now, the, the, the Jews hear about this, particularly the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem, the religious leaders, and several of them were sent to John to find out what's going on, to investigate, which is the right thing to do. That's the responsible thing to do. If you're the religious leaders and thousands of people are going out to this guy in the desert, you need to find out what's going on. So they go to him and they ask him, who are you? Who are you? Now, John, he right away, off the bat, he says to them, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. He knows what they're thinking. That's what most people were probably thinking. They were living in a time where messianic expectation was very, very high. People were longing for and expecting God to send his long-awaited Messiah to come and deliver the people of Israel, to deliver them, to be their Messiah. Now, most people were thinking of a political deliverance, a military deliverance from um, being under the thumb of Rome. But regardless of what they were thinking, they were waiting for this Messiah. So there was this messianic fever, so to speak, and many people were coming out to John the Baptist, and he tells them right away, I am not the Messiah. So they ask him, okay, if, that's not, if you're not the Messiah, then who are you? Who are you? They say, then are you Elijah? Now, why would I ask him if he's Elijah? I mean, Elijah's been gone for, you know, hundreds, my gosh, how many hundreds of years, a thousand years, Elijah has not been around. How could he possibly be Elijah? Is it because Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot and he didn't die? And maybe in some way they thought that he might return? Most likely it was connected to Malachi, chapter 4, when Malachi, at the end of his book, in the last prophet of the Old Testament, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So um, Malachi says, God is going to send Elijah back. He's going to send Elijah back before that final day of judgment. So the, 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 the Pharisees, the religious leaders are asking, is that who you are then? Are you Elijah? John says, no, I'm not. Now, if he's not Elijah, why did Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, why did he say this? For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Now, if they're asking him, John, are you Elijah? John says, no, I'm not Elijah. But if John says he's not Elijah and he is John, why did Jesus say that John is Elijah? Well, the reason that Jesus is saying that John is the Elijah who is to come is because what Malachi talked about, the Elijah that Malachi talked about, was not the physical Elijah, the actual person Elijah. What, what Malachi was talking about, what God was saying through Malachi, was that the spirit of prophecy was going to return. There's going to be a prophetic voice that comes back after hundreds of years of silence during this intertestamental period. A, a, a prophetic voice is going to come back, and it is going to turn the hearts of the children's back, children back to their fathers. It's going to turn the people back to their God. So in that way, John is Elijah. Elijah wore you know, uh, animal skins, and he, he, he lived that prophet, crazy prophet lifestyle out in the wilderness. John the Baptist wore uh, animal skins. He ate locusts and honey. He lived out in the wilderness. John was once again the spirit of prophecy. He was God coming and speaking to turn his people back to him, back to God the Father. The people didn't understand who Elijah would be, but that's who Elijah was. But John just addresses their understanding, their thinking that he would be the actual Elijah incarnate. He says, no, that's not who I am. So they ask him, okay, if that's not who you are, are you the prophet? Now, who's the prophet? The prophet that they were expecting also was from Deuteronomy chapter 18. 
when Moses, in his final address to the people of Israel, before he died, before he was gathered up to the Lord, he said to the people of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses said, one day God's going to send another prophet like me. And when he comes, you should listen to him. Now, what did Moses mean by that? In what way would the prophet be like him? Well, Moses came and he brought the covenant of Sinai to the people of Israel. He brought the covenant of the Torah to the people of Israel. God's law, that first covenant, that old covenant. But Jesus, the prophet from God, would come and bring the new covenant. The covenant of his blood. The covenant of grace. The grace that instead of grace, as we read about earlier in chapter 1, the grace instead of grace that Jesus would bring. He would be the one who would inaugurate a new covenant through his own blood, through the cross. In that way, he is the prophet who is like Moses. So John says, no, that's not me. I am not that prophet either. So now these, these religious leaders are saying, okay, let's stop this guessing game. Okay. Let's stop this. Okay, who are you? Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Okay, let's cut to the chase. Who are you? And who does John the Baptist say that he is? He says this, who I am? I am the voice of of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. How does John describe himself? He goes back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3, and he quotes that verse. He says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now, what was happening in Isaiah chapter 40? What was going on there? You know, when I, when I read this in the past, most of the time when I hear John saying, make, make straight the way of the Lord, my, my thought was that, oh, he's saying, let's roll out the red carpet for Jesus, right? Let's, let's make the roads straight for him. Every mountain come low. Every valley be filled up. Make the way straight. Let's roll out the red carpet for Jesus, for the Messiah as he returns to us. But that's not exactly the context of Isaiah chapter 40. What Isaiah chapter 40 is saying is that, the, what Isaiah is prophesying is that God is going to bring his people out of exile, out of Babylon, where they were exiled for their sins and for their disobedience to God. God is going to bring them out of Babylon and he's going to bring them back to um, the promised land. And Isaiah is saying it is going to be such a huge deliverance. It is going to be a massive deliverance of people. So many people that you're going to have to go out and do a public works project out on those roads. You're going to have to expand the highways. You're going to have to level the mountains to make this expanded highway for the people of God to return. That's what Isaiah is saying God was going to do one day. Just as God brought the people out of Egypt out of slavery, when he brought them out in that exodus, God was going to bring them out of Babylon and into the promised land yet again. But here's the thing that's interesting. What Isaiah said already happened. He, when he said this, this was hundreds of years before Ezra and Nehemiah. But isn't that what Ezra and Nehemiah did? They came out of Babylon they, they, Nehemiah had the favor of the king, Artaxerxes, went down to Jerusalem, rebuilt the walls, brought back people from Babylon with him, and, and made the people live in Israel again. Isn't what Isaiah is saying already fulfilled? And John, what are you talking about? What John is saying here is that there is going to be another exodus. There is going to be another exodus, and it is going to make the exodus out of slavery in Egypt look small in comparison. There is going to be another leaving from exile and returning to the promised land, and that's going to make the one out of Babylon and into Israel look like child's play. God is going to bring about a salvation. He's going to bring about a, a deliverance 
that we have not seen before. That's what God is going to do. Now, the, the religious leaders didn't get this. If I were there, I'd be like, whoa. They just move on and they said, well, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. So the relig- you could see in the religious leaders at this time, there was this understanding or this presumption that only messianic the Messiah or, or messianic figures, uh, like prophetic figures, that they were supposed to baptize. Why are you baptizing then, John? And John says, I'm just baptizing with water. That's all. That's all. But there is a greater baptism that is to come. Okay, so that's what's going on here. I'm just trying to set the stage for what's happening here when John comes on the scene. And now I want to dive into the actual message of John. The power of the message of John the Baptist. What was his message to these religious leaders? What was his message to the people of Israel there? Well, it's two parts. It says that when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is John saying? Why does he call Jesus a lamb? How can a lamb take away the sin of the world? What does this mean? Well, this is deeply connected with the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, in the Torah, in the law of Moses. And that was this, that when you sinned against God, you were to bring an animal as a sacrifice to the temple. Sometimes it was a bull. Sometimes it was a goat. Sometimes it was a lamb. And when this this animal, let's take a lamb, when it was brought there, this animal was killed. Its blood was shed so that you could be forgiven. That was the purpose of it. The implication of it was this. My sin deserves death. I should die. Because of my sin. Because I've sinned against God, I deserve death. But instead of me dying, I have come to bring this sacrificial lamb. And it is dying in my place because of my sin so that I could be forgiven. Now the natural question is, how can an animal, how can a lamb take away sin? Isn't that silly if you think about it? I mean... That's just like a get-out-of-jail-free card for some rich dude. If you're super rich, you could buy thousands of sheep, and you could sin all day. You could do whatever you want and just sacrifice sheep and sheep and sheep and sheep. That'd be really, really unfair. How, how, is that what the Bible is saying? It's not saying that. In fact, in the Old Testament, it also says the blood of goats and bulls can never take away sin. Well, then... then, then Why did God say to bring the lamb as a sacrifice? Why did he say it can take away sin? Because it was all done as a foreshadowing. It was all done as a picture of how God would one day take away sin. It was all meant to create this expectation within the hearts of the people that said, my sin deserves death and nothing can take that away. That somehow, one day, God is going to have to provide some type of sacrifice that can truly take away my sin. And this is what Isaiah talked about as well in the 53rd chapter when he said, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What is Isaiah talking about? What is he prophesying about? He's saying one day God is going to send a Messiah who is also a lamb, and this lamb would be slaughtered, and he's going to keep his mouth shut. He's going to be silent. He's not going to fight it. Just like Jesus, the Son of God, came and died upon a cross willingly. When they came to arrest him, Peter pulled out his sword and tried to fight those who were arresting him. And Jesus told him to put away your sword. Put away your sword. Because this is why he came. To be the lamb that would die in our place to take away the sin of the world. The sin of all those 
as John said earlier in chapter 1, who would believe and receive him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, here's the second part of the message. The second part of his message of the gospel here. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. What is John talking about? He's saying that when he was there baptizing in the Jordan River, one day Jesus came along. And Jesus came and told John to baptize him. And John said, me, baptize you. You should baptize me. You're the Messiah. Why should I? I don't deserve. What are you talking about? Why should I baptize you? And Jesus said, you need to do this. Baptize me. John baptizes him. And as he's doing it, he says he sees the Holy Spirit come down like a dove and rest upon Jesus and remain upon Jesus. Now, that's really important. That the Holy Spirit rests upon Jesus and remains upon him. He doesn't just like flutter upon Jesus and then flutter away. He stays on Jesus. He remains upon him. You know, when we read the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit working. But the Holy Spirit doesn't remain upon somebody. Samson, when he gets his strength, you read about the Holy Spirit rushing upon Samson. And Samson develops his super strength, but the Holy Spirit would leave Samson. We read about Saul, who when he became king of Israel, the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he went and he fought the Ammonites and delivered the Israelites from the Ammonites. But then the Spirit of God also left him. We see even David. It talks about the Spirit of God rushing upon David. But none of these people enjoyed the remaining presence of the Holy Spirit upon them. But it says here, John says, I saw the Holy Spirit descend upon him and remain upon him. Now, why is that important? Why is that important? Because John says, Jesus, the one that the Spirit remains upon, he also baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit remains upon him, he doesn't baptize just with water, friends. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That means when you put your faith in this Lamb of God who takes away your sin, he doesn't just take away your sin and say, see you later. He says the Holy Spirit himself will come and fill you and live within you and stay within you, that God himself will be within you. This is not some type of pantheism. This is not some type of melding where I become God or something like that. This is some type of spiritual presence of God where he, theologians say, indwells. He indwells you. He remains within you. Paul in 2 Corinthians said, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. As a guarantee. Paul saying the Holy Spirit is like a deposit that's made within you. And that deposit guarantees that when Jesus returns at his second coming, that he will take you, that you will be with him that you are one of God's children because the Holy Spirit rests upon you and remains within you. You've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's what John is saying here. And this Holy Spirit that is within us, this is what enables us to live transformed lives marked by the fruit of the Spirit, by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It transforms us. This Holy Spirit that indwells us enables us to overcome sin and to live in alignment with the will of God. It changes everything. The indwelling Spirit transforms us. 
This is the powerful message of John the Baptist to all people. You know, one, one way I would illustrate this that I think is a great illustration. I know I've heard this in the past somewhere. I didn't come up with this. But somebody described the gospel, these two parts, the lamb taking away our sin and the Holy Spirit indwelling and transforming us. They, they, they used the illustration of somebody in prison, somebody on death row who's supposed to die who's supposed to be executed because of his crimes against humanity. Maybe he killed somebody or did something really, really heinous, and he has a debt that he has to pay to society. He's supposed to die. Now imagine in this society that the law allowed somebody else to come in and to take your place, to take your punishment. So somebody comes in and says to you who are on death row, and he says, I will come and I will die in your place. I will pay your debt to society so that you can go free. And he comes in the jail, and now the warden comes and says, you are free to go because he is going to take your punishment. He's going to pay your debt. That is a wonderful message. But now if that were all that happened, what's the guarantee that you won't go out and do the same thing again in society. You know, recidivism is a huge thing in our country. Many people, if they don't get changed in prison, if they don't undergo rehabilitation, when they come out, they go back to the same life as before, they commit the same crimes as before, and they end up back in the same place. This is why, this is why it is so important that the Holy Spirit also comes within us to transform us so that we live differently, so that we change. God doesn't just say, you're forgiven, now you're on your own, only for us to continue walking in our sinful nature and doing the same things over and over again. No, God transforms us because the Holy Spirit is within us so that we can exhibit the fruit of the Spirit so that we can love God and love others so that we can overcome sin and live in alignment with the will of God so that we can be the people that God has made us to be. This is the incredible message of John the Baptist, the power of his message. He declares the greatness of this God who would come and give us this gospel. And John when he sees how great this message is, he realizes how small he is. And, and, and John is a man of humility. He says, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. In fact, he says, you know who I am? I'm not even worthy to take off the sandals of, of, of the Messiah. Now, we may say, oh, that's, that's really something, John. That's really humble of you. But we need to understand the context back then. You know, Back in those days, in a teacher-student relationship, the student was basically supposed to be like a slave to the teacher and do anything that the teacher wanted. That was, that was the relationship. You are a disciple. You are, to your rabbi, to your teacher, you do everything except one thing. You didn't have to untie your, your teacher's shoes. You didn't have to do that because that's too low of a thing to do. Because you walk out there in these sandals and your feet are caked in mud and dirt and dung on the street from cows and horses and mules. Nobody should have to stoop down and take off somebody's shoes, not even a student for his rabbi. John says, not only, not only am I not worthy to not only am I willing to take off the shoes of the Messiah, something that nobody has to do, friends, I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes. Do you see, do you see how low John is going here? The humility that John has because of the greatness of God that he sees. Philip Brooks, 19th century theologian, he said the true way to be humble it's not to stoop until you are smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. Friends, there is no greater message in the history of the world than this. 
The Lamb of God has come. He takes away our sin. And he baptizes us in the Holy Spirit so that we can live the life that we were meant to live. What a powerful message from John. Now, the second point um, is I want to focus in a little bit on the Baptist here. And I want to talk about the privilege of the messenger. The first point was about the power of the message. The second is about the privilege of the messenger. Here, once again, John, he identified himself. When they asked him who he was, he said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Who does John say that he is? What does he identify himself as? He identifies himself as a proclaimer. As a proclaimer. He identifies himself with his proclamation that God has come to bring people out of exile, to deliver his people, not out of slavery in Egypt, not out of exile in Babylon, but out of slavery to sin. God comes and, pro- Jesus, uh, John the Baptist comes and proclaims a message of deliverance. He sees himself as a proclaimer. He says in verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing him with water, that he might be revealed in Israel. John says, this is my purpose. Why did I come? What is my purpose? My purpose is to reveal Jesus, reveal the Messiah to the people of Israel. Brothers and sisters, one thing that I take away from this, one thing that I see that's so fascinating and so amazing about this is that God is a God who sends messengers to his people. God is a God who doesn't just show up out of nowhere, who doesn't just say, surprise, second coming, judgment day. What? Oh, no. Did I need to believe in something? Too late. God doesn't do that. God is a God who sends messengers to prepare his people to meet him. That's what he does. He's a God who is patient. He is a God who is loving, and he sends messengers to prepare people so that they wouldn't miss him, so that they could see him and know who he is. You know, sometimes the the God of the Old Testament gets a bad rap. People think, oh, he's such a mean God. He's a God of lightning bolts and angry face and you know, all of that stuff. He's this mean God. That's not who he is. You've seen the Old Testament. God sent prophets again and again and again, messengers to Israel again and again and again to warn them to turn from their sin so that judgment would not come upon them. But they did not listen. And Israel fell into captivity to the Assyrians. And Judah fell into captivity to the Babylonians. But God sent messengers again and again and again. God is a God who sends messengers to his people. And God sent John so that people would be prepared. So that they would recognize Jesus in his first coming. And God sends messengers as well. You and me to prepare people so that they would be ready for Jesus in his final and second coming. God works through messengers, and it is such a privilege. John told the people, hey, I'm just baptizing with water, but this Messiah is going to come, and he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit if you believe and receive. And we tell people, Jesus has come. And if you believe in him, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. If you believe and receive. But he will come again in the future on a day we do not know. And there will be another baptism as well. For those who do not know him, those who did not believe and receive him, it will be a baptism of fire. As Matthew, in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus said, John the Baptist said there, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we have this message that we proclaim to believe in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world 
so that you could be baptized with the Holy Spirit and so that you would not be baptized by fire at the second coming of Christ. Friends, God, this is how God works. Why does he send John the Baptist? Why does he do that? Why didn't Jesus just show up on the scene? Because God is concerned to prepare people. He doesn't want them to miss it. He doesn't want them to miss it. The heart of God is that everybody would come to know him and forgiveness and resurrection life through Jesus. God used many people, many messengers in my life to prepare me to meet Jesus. He used my friend Jack, who invited me to church one day when I was in high school. I was, there are no Christians in my family. I didn't know much about Jesus. I grew up with friends who went to church. I thought they were crazy. Sunday morning, you go to church. Back in my day, that was when cartoons were on. There was no on-demand. I know, you're like, what are you talking about? You can watch cartoons whenever you want. No, you couldn't. Cartoons would come on Sunday morning, and when they were over, they were over. When you saw that soul train start coming across the screen, okay, unless you're over 40, you don't know this, that was, that was the, the, the death knoll. Oh, gosh, the soul train is coming across the screen. No more cartoons, right? No, why would you go to church? But my friend Jack invited me as a messenger of God. He invited me. He said, hey, come on out. Come on out. God used Arthur. This older man at the church who would, who would lead this class and the, for people who were not Christians, who had questions about Christianity. And he put up with all of my endless questions about, about dinosaurs and UFOs and carbon dating and yada, 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 over and over and over again, patiently and lovingly. God used him as a messenger. I went out to a retreat after a year. God used an evangelist. Who came? This evangelist who came and spoke the message of the gospel to finally open up my heart so that I believed in the message of the Lamb of God. God used all these messengers to prepare me for the message of the gospel so that I would not miss it, so that I could be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and so that when Jesus returns at that final day, I would be taken up with him and that I would not be baptized by that fire of judgment. God uses messengers. Brothers and sisters, in God still uses messengers. He used John the Baptist, he uses me, and he uses you now after the time of John. And friends, that is a privilege. That is an unbelievable privilege. Do you know what a privilege it is? Let me read to you this verse from Matthew, that Jesus said about John to see what a privilege it is. Jesus said this about John. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What? Jesus, what are you saying? Among those born of women, we've all been born of women. In other words, all people, it's a metaphor for humanity. No one has risen greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the greatest. How could that be? I mean, how long did he minister for? A couple of months? Moses was in the wilderness 40 years. Moses up in heaven be like, what a chip. Are you serious? 40, God, hello, I'm right here 40 years. John the Baptist, four days, four months. I don't know how long it was. Come on, are you serious? Jesus, why would you say that? Why? Here's why. Because throughout the Old Testament, prophet after prophet after prophet told the people about this Messiah who was to come. But they all pointed to this Messiah from a distance, from a great distance sometimes from a thousand years, from hundreds of years, they pointed to this Messiah and said, God will send this Messiah. God will send this lamb that will take away our sin. God will do that one day. But Jesus, but John the Baptist, his privilege is this. John the Baptist is the greatest of all is because he doesn't have to point and say, one day God will send this lamb. One day God will send this Messiah. John the Baptist gets to say, this is him. He is the one. 
unambiguously, this is the Messiah right here. Follow him. And there's no greater privilege than that. Oh, how all the prophets would have longed to be able to be the one to say, this is the one. This is the Lamb of God. But they had to settle for one day. One day he'll come. One day, I don't know when, but God will send him. John got to say, ladies and gentlemen, here he is. This is him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But why does Jesus say, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he? What does he mean? Who's in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is talking about post-John. Jesus is talking about post-cross and resurrection. Jesus is talking about the age of the church. Jesus is talking about from 2,000 years ago until now, all of us are greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because we have a greater knowledge than John. We have seen the resurrection. We have seen the crucifixion. John didn't even have the whole picture. When John was in prison, wondering, why am I still in prison? He sent these disciples to Jesus to say, are you or are you not the Messiah? Because if you're the Messiah, why is your number one fanboy in jail still? I'm your number one fan. Why are you leaving me here in jail? Even John didn't fully understand what was going on. But why? But we, we, brothers and sisters, can point to Jesus even more unambiguously than John. And that is the greatest privilege a person can have. There is no greater privilege that you have in your life than to point other people and then to tell other people, this is him. This is the Messiah. Oh, and I'm not confused about why he had to die. I'm not confused about the empty tomb that was all prophet. John was confused. That was all meant to be. Jesus is the Messiah who died and rose again. We point in a clearer, more unambiguous way than John, and that is the greatest privilege of your life. Do we realize that? Do we realize what a privilege that we, what we have? We love privilege, don't we? We live for privilege in many different ways. I love TSA pre. I love going in the airport, getting on that line, and walking by all these other people. Thank God, nowadays, I have TSA pre. I feel so privileged every time I get it. When I get my boarding pass, I'm nervous. I'm going to have TSA pre. I'm going to have TSA pre. I love that privilege. We love the privilege. If you got that privilege of being in some, like, country club, having nice pools and tennis courts and nice places to go, nice golf courses that only you can go to, what a privilege. We love that kind of privilege. Maybe at your company, you get all these free snacks. You get all this nice food, nice lunch. What a privilege. We love privilege. In some ways, we seek a life of privilege, don't we? We want a privilege of a nice house, privilege of a nice car, privilege of good health. We want privilege of money and wealth and to be respected and be given access and to know people and to be known. We love privilege. We live for that. But have we forgotten that the greatest privilege that we have is to tell people about Jesus. And that is a privilege that you have, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're black or white or Asian or Latino, whether you live in America or on the other side of the world, this is a privilege that every Christian has, and this is the greatest privilege that you have, to introduce people to this Jesus and to say, I am not he. What you are searching for in life is not it. He is it. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the source of true transformation in your life. Are we making use of this privilege that we have been given? Or do we neglect it? Do we forget about it? Friends, there's nothing more important that we can do for somebody than to tell them, than to point them to Jesus. You know, people need friends. They may need a handout. They may need some money. They may need shelter. They need all sorts of different things. That's true. But there's nothing they need more than Jesus. If you, if you, 
If you, if you have a friend who's dying of a disease and you have the antidote, but you don't give it to him and you just say, hey, I'll be your friend. I'll be a shoulder you can cry on. I'll be a, an ear you can listen, uh, will listen to you. Hey, I got money here. I can help you with that. I can buy you a meal. I can be here for you in all these different ways, but you don't give him the antidote? That's wrong. <laughs> he needs all those other things. Don't get me wrong. All those other things are really good. Give him all those things, but give him the antidote. Tell him the cure for his disease. Yes, go out in society. Feed the poor. Be a friend to people. Love them. Befriend the lonely. Help society. But if you don't tell them about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the true source of change in their life, you're not telling them the deepest need of their life. And you're passing on the greatest privilege that God has given you. Even he or she who is least in the kingdom of God. When you tell people about Jesus, you're greater than John the Baptist. My, what a privilege. What a privilege we have. Let's pray. Invite the worship team up. Friends, let's close our eyes. This morning, if there's anybody here, if you've never made Jesus your Lord and Savior, I am a messenger. Others are here, are messengers. We, we have, we're nobodies. We just have the privilege of telling you that God has us here to prepare the way for you. He wants you to know that there is a way to be forgiven. He wants you to know that there is a way to be transformed. He doesn't want you to miss it. And this whole thing, we're here to tell you as messengers of God that the love of God has provided a way. And he wants you to be his child. If you would just believe and receive that there is nothing that you could do to earn forgiveness, that you are a prisoner on the death row of the universe because of your sin. You can never be good enough. But that God has provided a way if you would believe and receive the work of Christ, that he has done that for you. If you believe that and receive that, the Holy Spirit will also come and fill your heart and enable you to live the life of a disciple of God. All you have to do right now is just in your heart to say, Lord, I believe. I believe. As Jesus said, he is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. And I want to believe. That's all you have to do. Would you believe and receive this morning Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Christians, brothers and sisters, are you chasing privilege? Are you trying to get it by becoming somebody in your job, by being recognized, by, doing, by being so successful in your career that you're somebody? Because you have a, a spouse and kids and a nice family, a white picket fence with a big house and a nice car, is that the privilege that you're seeking? Are you seeking to be seen as somebody, as smart or sophisticated, accomplished, a worldly person, beautiful or handsome, the best? Is that the type of privilege that you're seeking? Oh, that God would open our eyes. We have no greater privilege than to be called children of God and to point other people to this Messiah. You have that privilege right now, right now. And when you exercise it, when you tell your friend, when you tell your neighbor, when you tell your coworker, when you tell the stranger, you are walking in greatness, greatness. Because that is the greatest privilege. 
would you ask God simply? Can we ask God, Lord, open my eyes to see that. Oh, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. I have, I have looked at so many other things and considered other things to be great. I've been seeking other greatness. But Lord, help me once. Help me to see like John the Baptist, your greatness. Help me to see how great you are and to point other people to this greatness. May I see it as the greatest privilege of my life. We just come right now and just ask God those two things. Open my eyes again, Lord, to see your greatness. And may I be so mesmerized, so mesmerized that I would, I would, I would be compelled to point others to the greatness of this salvation. Can we ask God to do that? Lord, we pray, come. Come right now. Oh, Lord, come. Forgive us, God, for being enamored by worldly greatness, by seeking a fleshly greatness, by seeking to be great in the eyes of people. Oh, Lord, God, change our lives. Change our lives, God. Open our eyes to the greatness of God, the greatness of the salvation, God. May we be awed. May we be floored. May we say, I don't, I don't even deserve to take off his sandals. May we point others. May we point. May we be compelled to point others to you, God, to exercise that greatest of privileges that you've blessed us with, God. Oh, come, Lord, we pray. As we enter into worship, would you continue to just bring your heart before the Lord and ask him to open your eyes to his greatness, that you would open the eyes of others as well. Let's stand together.